Acts chapter 18. And so if you would uh, like to open your Bibles, I would encourage you to do so. Look on your iPad or your phone, whatever device you might use. Uh, we like paper Bibles and turning the pages whenever possible, but uh, that's okay if you use something different. But please open the scriptures, follow along with us this morning as we continue in this very important study about the early church and the spread of Christianity. And so we, again, are up to Acts chapter 18. You know, in today's passage, we see the mandate by Jesus to make disciple makers being carried out again. We've seen that through the first 17 chapters of Acts. And this morning, we're specifically going to notice Acts 18. We'll see the gospel this morning lived out in people's lives, that, that gospel-centered lives will lead to relationally-driven lifestyles. Let me say that again. Gospel-centered lives will result and lead to relationally-driven lifestyles of disciple-making. And that's the very thing that Jesus modeled to those who followed him, the very same thing that Paul models in our passage today. But it's interesting when you stop and think about um, the day in which we live in, I wonder if sometimes that's not become somewhat of a foreign thought for those who call themselves Christians. You know, there are many that would maybe even say, you know, our, my faith is a private thing. It, it's, it's my faith and it's not something I should talk about. And I would say to you, consider what we've been studying so far, that that's never been any kind of a model or example we see from Scripture. And we don't see that the Christian faith, as we've been studying, is something that happens during a certain hour, one day on a week. The Christian faith was something that changed people's lives. And their passions and their priorities became like those of Jesus. And as we read our pages of Scripture and Acts, it's, uh, it's like a documentary of that being lived out for us. When we live like our faith is some kind of a private faith or something that is so compartmentalized to a day of the week or two days of the week, I'm going to suggest to you that we send a pretty mixed message to the world we live in. We, we don't look so authentic when it becomes so compartmentalized in our life. When we say that our faith is really important to us and that we're a follower of Jesus, but it becomes disconnected to our life. The world around us just kind of scratches their head and says, what's this all about? The truth is that Jesus taught that anyone who believes in him, anyone who is a follower of Christ, listen to this, these are Jesus's words, must deny himself, pick up their cross and follow him. Those three things are not easy to do. I mean, to deny myself, I don't like to hear that. To, to pick up my cross, to embrace the very gospel that Jesus died for, and to follow him, 
means that my life looks like Jesus' life. Now, imperfectly, most certainly, but my mannerisms, my passions, my priorities are those very things that we saw Jesus model. This disciple-making call of Jesus was to be a disciple-maker that lives throughout life making disciples the way I did. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you had to um, maybe act like something you weren't and then eventually have uh, kind of the veil pulled off and you're seen for the true you. But as I studied this week, I was reminded of a men's retreat that uh, I went on and took some men one time many years ago. And uh, this retreat, one of the events we were going to do was go whitewater rafting. So it was like 20 men, something like that, went away for a whole weekend, had some devotional times and fun time. But the main kind of premier thing was we paid money to go whitewater rafting. The, the, the issue was this, uh, the trip we chose required you have some level of experience in whitewater rafting. They're like class three and above rapids, okay? So uh, myself and a couple of us had went one other time, so we were naturally experts already. But I remember driving down and staying in this lodge. The night before, we go down to this lake that had a couple canoes, and the guys who never rafted before, we said, look, here's some commands you gotta learn, like back left or forward right. And you know, so when the guide yells this out, you look like you kinda know what you're doing, and we're okay. Honest, uh, three or four of the guys fell into the water just getting into the canoe. But the day arrives, we're going to go whitewater rafting, and we go down, and we've got multiple can, um, rafts that we're getting into. You know, we got the gear, the, the helmet, the vest. A lot of us had wetsuits on. There's an image you don't want to think about with me in a wetsuit. <clears throat> but, but we get into our, our, our rafts to go down this um, river, and we get in it, and it's ankle deep. And we're thinking, how tough could this be? But within a half an hour, the water rose to over waist deep because a dam would let out water and you would ride this rapid down. So the first set of rapids, I was in the first raft. We did pretty good. We had a couple guys almost go out. But the second raft out of us, everybody fell out of the raft but one guy, and that was not the guide. And it wasn't until after that first set of rapids, we pulled off to the side and the guide said, most of you guys have never done this, have you? I mean, you, you led us to believe that you knew what you were doing. And the truth is, I'm not exaggerating with them saying this, there are people who die on these rapids. We, we were seen to be fakes. You know, we claimed we knew all the right lingo, we dressed the right way, we acted like we knew what we were doing, and the truth is, when the moment of truth came, we were exposed that we really weren't who we said we were, which were like white water rafters. And I wonder in our own life, in our spiritual life, if the world around us sees us dress a certain way, 
or use certain phrases or do certain things to make them believe we are disciples of Jesus, yet when the moment of truth comes, we look anything but disciples of Jesus. You know, the world desperately needs to see us live with the same passions and priorities of Christ if you're going to call yourself a disciple. So this morning, before we read Acts 18, I want to give us a little recap of what's happening to emphasize my point that God uses his people, ordinary people, to proclaim his message of salvation to his world. Let me say it again. God uses his people, ordinary people, to proclaim his message to God's world. Acts chapter 1, verse 15. This is just a quick summary. We see 120 people gathered in the upper room that are followers of Christ. They're waiting Jesus, or just as Jesus had said, for the Holy Spirit to come. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Peter preaches his first sermon. 3,000 people are added to the faith. A few verses later, in verse 47, it says, Day by day, more and more people are being saved. And always is the case in Acts. Those who become followers of Christ are baptized. We'll talk about that in a little bit here. Acts chapter 4, it lists 5,000 men who come to faith. And so we don't know how many women or children there could have been in that. Acts chapter 5 and 6 repeats this. More and more people are added to the faith. And it says, Jerusalem was filled with disciples. And then we get to Acts chapter 8. And you have the expansion into Samaria and Judea. Let me back up for a moment. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Jesus told his followers that you were to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. We've seen it in Jerusalem. Now in Acts 8, we see the gospel spread to Samaria and Judea. And it's the very people in the verses up through chapter 7 that are saved that are now starting gospel works. It's no longer just the apostles. And so churches are being planted. More disciples are being raised and sent and then in Acts chapter 24, verse 5, it says, the gospel is spreading throughout the world. Well, it didn't do it by just 11 men following Jesus. It did it by the gospel taking root in ordinary people's heart. And it transformed them into living with the passions and the priorities and the message of Christ. So Acts records the spreading of the Christian faith, the gospel being proclaimed, disciples being multiplied, churches being started, and the world being turned upside down as we heard in Acts 17.6 last week. Literally, the Christian faith that is now being spread is causing empires to fear and other faiths to falter and fail. How? Again, God using his people to carry his message. 
to my question as we begin this study this morning, is there a clear pattern of disciple-making in your life? Or do you view disciple-making and disciple-being as some kind of an option you get to choose? And I would say if you believe that, you haven't studied your scriptures very closely. God's plan today is the same as it was from the beginning of Acts to use his people, ordinary people, to proclaim his message to God's world. I fear many who call themselves Christians maybe have lost sight or are part in this and this expansion of God's kingdom and the peace we play. One of the things that I personally have been praying about and thinking is that while we've experienced this um, COVID crisis, we are so thankful that we have technology to broadcast messages. That's, that's a gift, a blessing, that we get to still study and worship together. But there's a danger in this, I'm afraid. And the danger is this, that we become very comfortable staying at home in our PJs watching a church service. It's a blessing now, but if it turns out to be long-term, the disciple-making mandate of Jesus is going to be hindered. The pattern we've seen in Acts thus far Acts chapter 1 being carried out as a result of Matthew 28, where Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. Baptize people in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And you notice he doesn't say go into the world and make churches. He doesn't even say go into the world and make church attenders. He's a very specific word about going into the world and making disciples. I know for many of you, and myself included, the, the day we now live in has seriously impacted the way Substance Church does ministry. I, I remember back when we planted the church, you know, the phrase on the banner behind me being gospel-centered, God-glorifying, and relationally driven is not just a slogan. When we lead in ministries at the church, this is to be a part of how and why we do things. But this relationally driven piece has been turned upside down during this time. I mean, having a video church service is so foreign to the way we do ministry. Not only that, it's uncomfortable for us who are participating. Here's what I mean. Uh, I remember throughout this, Kim and I sitting on the couch together, singing to each other. It's kind of weird, and it's painful for her. <laughs> and then we read scripture together, which is not abnormal for us, but there's a lacking of community and relationship and being kind of fired up and excited to go back out into the world after Sunday to be on this disciple-making journey. So we've suffered as a church through this. I know God's gonna use it for good in our life and our church body, but it's foreign. We feel the absence now. And again, if you're joining us for the first time on video, that, that's maybe a little hard for you to understand if you haven't been with us in person before. But soon we get to be back together, starting next week. Two services together. It won't look like the old Substance Church service yet. We're going to be careful and do social distancing and make this as safe as we can. But I want to warn you, 
I want to warn you and, and cause you to pause for a minute and say, don't let this time make you some kind of a church spectator now. Don't, don't, don't make this a time in which, well, it's easier to just stay home and watch with my kids or my grandparents or whoever. Now, I also want to clarify something, so, so please hear me clearly. There are those of you that are at risk due to health issues. Those of you who shouldn't be in public settings yet amidst this COVID crisis. So we're going to ask you, please stay home. We won't look down on you. We won't think less of you. We actually love you and want you to be careful. But for the rest of us, let's make sure we don't use this as a time to get a little, little comfortable, to sit back and not participate. The command to be a disciple and to make disciples is foundational to being a follower of Jesus. Three questions that I'm going to ask you now, and then I'm going to ask you at the end of my message. First is this. Is the gospel stirring in you a greater affection for God and people? Is the gospel stirring in you a greater affection for God and people? Second, is the gospel stirring in you a priority to be a disciple maker and to make more disciples? And third, is the gospel stirring in you a passion and a priority for the things of Jesus? Those are all questions we need to wrestle with. And as we go through the message this morning, let's take note of those three questions. Again, I'll ask you at the end of my message. Today's passage, there'll be seven people that Paul is intimately involved with. Seven people in just one passage that he is intimately involved with. They're in his disciple-making circles of influence and at least five of them catch this. At least five of them in the passage this morning will become involved in making disciples in their own life. At least five of the people listed in this passage now engage and are discipling other people themselves. So I'm going to take this in chunks. I'm going to ask that you read with me. Uh, along in your Bible, Acts chapter 18, we're going to go through verse 17. After this, Paul left Athens last week uh, in chapter 17. That was Paul's location. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because uh, he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied 
with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I'm with you, and no one will attack you or harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio, who was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made an untitled attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosothenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. So Paul leaves Athens, goes about 45 miles or so, and goes to Corinth next. And he arrives there and he meets Aquila and Priscilla. They were Jewish and had been kicked out of Rome because they were Jewish. There must have been some sort of uprising that was happening uh, in Rome. And therefore, the Jews were being kicked out of Rome. Don't know for sure if they were even Christians yet. The text doesn't tell us the first time that Paul meets them. They're Roman citizens and tent makers and so was Paul. And so they had this common bond of Roman citizenship and being tent makers, those making tents. It was a trade. And so Paul, as his regular routine was, would go into the synagogue. He begins to preach and engage people with the gospel and Jesus. Let me have you take note of that for a moment. Because everything we've read so far, every time Paul engages Jew or Greek or Gentile, it's always about the gospel. It wasn't part of a message. It wasn't that message and something else. It was the gospel and the gospel alone. And so Paul stays with them. You get the relational connection, he stays with them. He begins to invest in them, train them, equip them. And they begin watching and listening and learning and then modeling eventually what Paul had taught them. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy arrived, two more disciples we've read about already because they'd been on mission themselves, but now they catch back up with Paul in Corinth. 
Paul's heavily engaged in teaching and proving and proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the gospel message, and that Jesus alone is the only path for restoration with God and forgiveness of sin. I want you to notice that every time Paul preaches this, every time anyone proclaims this, there's only two responses. One is people get angry and start to become violent and fight against the message of the gospel, or else people begin to accept it and understand it. Disciples are observing and hearing and learning about gospel ministry all along. Priscilla and Aquila, Silas and Timothy. And so most of the Jewish groups, as is normal, uh, that we see in this passage, they reject the gospel. And they get angry, violently angry at Paul and begin to scheme and trying to do whatever they can to either get him harmed, killed, or kicked out of the city. So they didn't have to face and deal with the gospel. And so Paul, I find this interesting, leaves the synagogue, the place of Jewish teaching and worship, does the symbolic shaking of his garments and said, yeah, you know, I've shared the truth with you. I'm innocent if you reject it. And he sets up his home base now right next door to the synagogue in the house of uh, Titus Justice. And he begins preaching and teaching there. And I can only imagine as people would go to the synagogue, they would walk by and hear Paul. They, they would still give attention to what was taking place. Because the next person who comes to faith in Christ is Crispus. Also a Jewish person in the synagogue, a person of leadership and authority. Not a rabbi, but he would oversee probably some of the physical elements of the synagogue, but would be heavily entrusted and involved. And so he hears the gospel, and it says he's converted. He becomes a follower of Christ. Not only he, but his whole family. And then it goes on to say that many Christians believe and were baptized in Corinth. The gospel message can't be stopped. We see it start to now gain momentum in Corinth, which, by the way, was a pretty seedy place. This morning, I don't have time to go into it, but you talk about a pretty rough, hard city with many beliefs and practices I wouldn't begin to say over the live broadcast to say. The gospel takes hold. Before we go into the next kind of section, though, I want you to notice the importance of baptism here. There, there was always baptism connected to professions of faith. And it's important for us to know that that's not an ordinary reading of the text in terms of understanding the significance. You realize that anyone who would be a follower of Christ and then be publicly baptized put their self and their family at high risk. Because those who opposed the gospel message would now inflict 
their torture and pain and attacks on anyone who was a follower. There were, there were high stakes to be a follower of Christ and then to be baptized. It brought on a higher level of acknowledgement by the community. And so many times in the early church, the ways it was done was highly symbolic compared to maybe the way we do it in our day. But it was publicly, personally, and passionately proclaiming that your identity is now in Jesus. And that your devotion and your allegiance to Jesus and the gospel is something you want the world to know. I love Baptism Sundays at Substance. People sharing their testimony and their public proclamation of their love and devotion to Jesus. Paul stays a year and a half in Corinth and he disciples and he trains and he equips more disciples. Let's pick up the story in verse 18 now. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila at Sencria, he had to cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I'll return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. He had landed at Caesarea. He went up to greet the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. This is an amazing example of disciples who are making more disciples just in this section. Aquila and Priscilla, after spending time with Paul, they leave Corinth and go to Ephesus. They leave their home again and now are connected to Paul and on mission with Paul. You begin to understand and view this disciple-making lifestyle that would drive the decisions a person makes in life. And so he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. It says that Paul cut his hair because he had taken a vow, just so we understand that at some point Paul must have set himself apart in prayer and thanksgiving, maybe even seeking guidance, kind of like someone might do in fasting today. And, and, and so at time of uh, the vow is over, and these kind of vows meant that uh, you weren't allowed to drink certain things and cut your hair, and so that's what this is signifying, just just Paul's passion to devote himself to God. And on the way, he stops in Ephesus and he goes to the synagogue and he engages people with the gospel. And so, again, it's the gospel that he's focused on. They ask him to stay and he says, I'm going to leave. But he didn't leave the people with nothing. He didn't abandon them and leave them with nothing. And here's the disciple-making piece you got to get. Aquila and Priscilla 
are left behind by Paul to carry on with the training and the equipping and the preaching and the teaching and the multiplying of disciples. They're with him. They've been trained. He leaves them and he goes on. Paul now travels back to Caesarea, a port town on the Mediterranean Sea. It says he goes up, which means he went to Jerusalem because of um, that area, Jerusalem would sit at a higher elevation. So whenever you read that in scripture, it's most often talking about going to Jerusalem. And he goes there and he strengthens and he encourages the disciples. Then he goes back down if you will, to Antioch and does the same thing there. And here's the crazy part that Paul does next. Rather than get on a ship and going back to Ephesus, look in your Bible maps. It's really interesting. He takes this long way around and walks. And it was probably a thousand mile journey. It'd be like you or I walking from Ashland to Orlando, Florida rather than going by train or to a plane. Why, why did Paul do this? Because throughout his previous two missionary journeys, he had visited places, he had seen people come to faith in Christ, he was making disciples, and now he wanted to make sure they were set and secure in the faith and making disciples themselves. Man, what an investment what an investment. Verses 24 through 28. In Ephesus, says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been introduced in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of the Lord, way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, had, who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Again, now we've got Timothy, Silas, Priscilla, Aquila, all on mission. And now Priscilla and Aquila meet a man named Apollos. He comes from Alexandria in Egypt. That was a famed intellectual center with a world-class library of the time. And it says that he's a man that was intelligent, passionate about God, able to speak and debate and was bold. But there was a problem here that if you notice in the text, he was either not a believer yet or he had not been fully exposed to the fullness of the gospel. And I'm going to lean more heavily on the side that he was not a believer yet. Now, different scholars, commentators differ on this. But the text says that he was only known, or he only knew of the baptism of John, meaning John the Baptist, a repentance 
of sin kind of baptism, okay? It, it also says that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, but I think that puts him into this camp of like an Old Testament saint who was waiting for the Savior, who understood and knew things about the Savior that was to come, but did not understand the Savior. So I think he might have knew only about the activities of Jesus, heard about Jesus being in the world, or that he heard what Jesus was proclaiming possibly. But he did not understand the death, the resurrection, and the Holy Spirit piece of the Christian faith. Stick with me. The gospel component of Jesus' death and resurrection was missing in his faith. The substitutionary atonement, atonement of Jesus for us is essential for salvation. And he didn't know it yet. But the faithful servants and disciples of Aquila and Priscilla did. And they pull him aside and share it with him. I was thinking that maybe Apollos is like many today. It's, it's easy to have this intellectual approach to Jesus. This academic belief and understanding that, oh, I could accept this. But without the death and resurrection, you don't have the Savior Jesus. You hear me? Without the death and resurrection, you don't have the Savior Jesus. It seems to me that Apollos got it when Priscilla and Aquila took him aside not public, took him aside and taught him and shepherded him and invested in him. And Paul's gospel disciple-making pattern is bearing fruit in their life now and in Apollos' life. See the pattern? There's a pattern. Seven people named in this passage, at least five were now on mission. There's three things I want to close with this morning that I pick up from this passage that we need to wrestle with and thoughts of this gospel and disciple-making pattern. The first is this. The gospel always confronts. The gospel always confronts. It confronts what you trust. It confronts what you believe. And it'll confront who you will serve. The gospel confronts. And because it confronts, it produces disciples. You know, tradition, self-righteousness, religious ritual are all stumbling blocks we face in understanding fully the gospel. They, they trip people up and they entice them over the pureness of the gospel. It's easier to have somebody tell you how to dress or how not to dress, where to go or what not to go to, the language you should use, the things you shouldn't eat or drink, the rules you should follow. It's easier to have somebody tell you that so you can check them off than have somebody proclaim the gospel to you and say, consider it in your heart. Let, let the gospel take root in your heart and then convict you of what you should and should not do. 
The gospel confronts our perceived goodness as we see each time Paul goes into a synagogue. The, the Jews were upset because the gospel makes us look at our sin and the holiness of God. And again, it'll, it'll come face to face with the things you're trying to do to make you right with God by attending a church service or, or maybe some kind of activities you think that makes God more happy with you. And so the religious rituals that were meant to point to God and his holiness and our need of a savior in the Old Testament, the Jewish people had taken and made those self-righteous things. And that's why in Philippians, Paul said, all those things, they're, they're garbage. Actually uses a stronger word and calls them manure. The gospel confronts because it denies self-righteous works and requires us to believe that salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. And so you have people like the Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, that hears that and believes it. And now takes it to his own family or household, which could mean not only wife and kids, but servants. The gospel confronts, it requires you to surrender your heart and devote yourself to Jesus. Again, as I started with this message of Jesus that we are to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him requires that we deny ourselves and devote ourselves to Jesus. And the call to die to self is a, a hard call. And so it'll confront you. The gospel confronts our biases. It confronts the biases we have towards other people and groups. Paul once hated Christians and was on a mission to kill them and have them locked up. Paul was Jewish. He didn't like Gentiles and Christians and all those kind of things. He was very biased in his life. And now this redeemed heart that loves Jesus gives his life to the Christian cause. My heart, like yours, I hope broke this week, these past couple of weeks, the biases in our world. No political party or politician can resolve that, friends. We need redeemed hearts that see people as the image bearers of God that produce a love in us for all people, in all places, at all times. Oh, we need the gospel. It confronts our hearts and our passions and our priorities. We can't be a comfortable spectator. The gospel confronts because it brings conviction to the way you're going to live your life. Many times the gospel confronts those who have never been baptized. I don't know why, but as I prayed and thought about this message this week, God seemed to be impressing on my heart for all of us to be reminded of the importance of baptism, this public proclamation of identifying and being proclaimed publicly my devotion and love and identity in Jesus. What's the gospel confronting you with? Second, 
The gospel always cracks. It cracks our beliefs, our purposes, and our priorities in life. It, it should produce disciple-making lifestyles, if you will. The gospel cracks our passions. It brings back into our heart a proper love of God. And it enables us to pursue a great commandment lifestyle, loving God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and to love people. Without the gospel, I don't want to love God with everything. God becomes just something I try to fit into my life when it's convenient. The gospel corrects our relationships. We align ourselves with the things of Jesus and begin to have relationships that are built on discipling each other into the things of Christ. Even in this picture, we see this wonderful picture of a husband and wife whose relationship was corrected. Now, I'm not saying they had a bad marriage. I don't mean that. But here you have a husband and wife whose passion and priority is to do whatever it takes to go wherever they're required to be on mission in gospel ministry. And so they go all the way from Corinth to Ephesus. And then right after that, you've got a single person, Apollos. I think he's single. We don't know. He's married. I'm going to assume he's single, who is heavily educated and, and pretty academic, who's, whose life in the same way was turned upside down, who now lives to invest in other people, to proclaim the gospel, to go wherever he needed to go. And so he's going to go from Ephesus to Corinth for the purposes of the gospel. And when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you'll see that. The, the gospel corrects our affections. We now have hearts that want the things Jesus wanted. We, we desire to please the Father, not for salvation, but because we are saved. We, we are no, long, no longer driven by works to hope to get a little more of God's love, that he'll like me more, he'll be more pleased with me. I, I desire because of the gospel to love and worship God because he redeemed me. And that shows his pleasure, his desire. And the gospel corrects the way we live life. We give grace the way Jesus gives grace to people. We desire to love people the way Jesus loved people, and we desire to forgive people the way Jesus forgave people. And finally, the last piece is the gospel always compels. The gospel always compels. If you're a true follower of Christ, there will be this compulsion within you, this drive, this urgency, this devotion to have the passions and priorities of Jesus. It'll be something you cannot resist. And again, imperfectly, we try to live this out. So don't, don't hear me wrong. But, but if you're a true follower of Christ, there's a compulsion. We're compelled. And here's why. 
because the Holy Spirit lives in you. Listen to what Jesus said in John 14, 26. He says this, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The very things of Christ are now going to compel us because you've got the Holy Spirit that lives in you reminding you of the teaching and the things of Jesus. The gospel compels us by giving us an eternal perspective on life. And there's an urgency about being involved in Jesus' work. The gospel compels us by giving us transformed minds and hearts. I don't know about you, but this is a verse a long time ago in my Christian faith I marked, and I'd encourage you to make it one for you. John 14, 12. Here's what Jesus says to his followers. Truly, truly, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. Listen to what Jesus says there. Truly, truly, like exclamation point, pay attention, whoever believes in me, so anybody who's going to profess to be a follower of Christ, he says, they will do the works that he does. See, there's no compartmentalization that we can have with Jesus if we're a follower. It means there's a noticeable difference in our life to be involved in the same things Jesus was, and that was making disciples. And so the gospel compels us, as I said early on, to relational disciple-making. Look at, look at how that happened. You have Paul teaching and studying the scriptures with people so that they were rock solid in the gospel. He, he trained in the Christian faith so they could share with others as we see happening in Timothy and Silas and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. And Paul would be confident to say, go off, go, be on mission. He sends them away. He also trained them in gospel fluency. Gospel fluency. Uh, the gospel was not some add-on, it was foundational. So no matter where Paul went, whenever he would speak, it was always about the gospel. And then finally, as he discipled those around him, he would be discipling them in a great commandment lifestyle. You know, it wasn't by chance it mentioned this vow Paul took. They would have noticed and known about his devotion to God as he studied and he prayed and he set himself apart to seek the very things of Christ. And so as we look at the people in this passage, they were all relationally connected. Paul spent time with them, stayed with them, was with them. And because of that, they had kingdom priorities that they would want to invest, train, and release their own disciples one day. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. Can you say that to the people around you? Would you feel comfortable speaking to those people around you that are Believers and even non-believers follow me as I follow Christ. That's how he trained his disciples. So how compelled are you in the gospel? How compelled are you in the gospel and in disciple making? 
Do you have a Timothy? Do you have a Timothy in your life? Do you have a Paulus in your life? Do you have a Priscilla and Aquila in your life? Do you have a Paul in your life that you're being discipled by? We're excited to start our community groups back up face to face. We've been kind of muddling through it in the video format, which we would all say is not perfect. But we go back into community groups and if you live and can worship with us live, you'll be encouraged to be in a community group. That's our disciple-making pathway or one of our main disciple-making pathways because it's relationally connected, gospel-centered, God-glorifying times we're together to learn what it means to be a disciple-maker and to live on mission. The three questions I ask you at the beginning, I want to ask you at the end now. Has the gospel produced in your life a greater affection for God and people? Has the gospel produced in your life a priority to be a disciple maker and make more disciples? And has the gospel produced in your life a passion and a priority for the things of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, thanks this morning for this portion of scripture that you have given us, that is your word, that models for us this disciple-making pattern throughout scripture. I would pray that the things we studied and read this morning where we need to be confronted, the gospel would be confronting us, maybe even right now, that we would not lose sight of this time and, and listen to you. Where are you confronting us? We also learn the gospel corrects. It corrects people's passions and priorities. And where is it that the gospel is correcting us right now? And then finally, the gospel compels. Help us to seriously consider that question. Is the gospel compelling us? Use the Holy Spirit to point out those things in any of these areas that you desire to shape and mold us to be more like Jesus. So thanks for your word, God, and the blessing it is to know that you love us, you forgive us, you're patient with us, but you're intentional with us as well. In Christ's name, amen.